Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. All right. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast episode number 37. Um, we've got Miss Olivia Mason and Mr. Brent Woods with us today. And we're going to be talking about sex addiction, love addiction, and all things uh, in that realm. So uh, there's some awesome therapists that Olivia works for me um, over in Ruston. Um, and she worked for Pine Grove Pine Gratitude Grove. Program. Right. And if you've listened to her before on the podcast, she talked about family systems theory and she did a great job with that and got a lot of great feedback from people about how awesome that was. So we had her back to talk about sex addiction. And then Brent Woods, you work um, for? Woods Counseling in Lake Charles. That's right. And so um, the goal of today is, um, you know, we've done a lot about sexual abuse, sexual neglect. Um, we've done a bunch of podcasts helping us talk about how to parent kids and how to you know protect our children and all that stuff. And we did one on just addiction in general, but about halfway through that podcast, we were going to kind of cover sex addiction. I realized like, oh man, we need a whole two hours to kind of dive into this and talk about it. Um, and so Brent and I worked together um, for the children's song for many moons ago. We were talking about that before. And right. um, so shout out to the Methodist children's song. Uh, and we got our CSATs and then we both launched our own practices. And so I just thought it'd be awesome to have him up, come up to catch up and uh, be a good resource and Olivia to come back and talk about stuff because she's awesome. We have, just for people to know, we have, I think, seven or eight CSATs on staff. And then we have Andy Bond also, who's a PSAP. So he's a pastoral sex addiction therapist. So um, let's get into it. So Olivia, we'll start with you ladies first. Um, tell us kind of who you are and how you became a CSAT and and why. Yeah. Um, like Clint said, um, I'm Olivia Mason, so licensed marriage and family therapist, um, certified sex addiction therapist, and I'm also recently just uh, became a brain spotting practitioner, which is really fun. So it's kind of like EMDR, um, just a little different, like a little tree branch off of that. Um, so how became a CSAT? Yeah, I mean, tell your story a little bit. I know you talked about it the last time. Um but yeah, what, uh, tell a little bit about why you became a therapist and then just why CSAP particularly. <laughs> okay. Um, so I became a therapist. Really, I think all of it is just very much the Lord guiding me here. Um, never would have thought I would have ended up here. I actually had um, lunch a couple Sundays ago with some friends from college. And one of them was an old roommate. One of them was, has just been a really good friend and they actually got married. Um, but I was saying to them, would y'all have ever expected me to be doing what I'm doing? And they cackled. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they were absolutely not. Um, and so, I mean, I guess my path to becoming a therapist was undergrad, was a kinesiology major, then a psychology major, changed over, found myself more interested in the mental health side of things and just why people were doing what they were doing. Um, had applied to 
LPC programs, didn't get in anywhere. And then again, like it was just kind of the Lord guiding me, ended up in Austin, Texas for a year working for uh, an autism clinic. So kids with that, that was applied behavioral analysis work there. Realized I, I really did not like that work. I thought I'd be interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, loved the kids, didn't love the work that was being done with them. Uh, it just wasn't up my alley. And realized I started asking more questions about who was helping the families because they dropped these kids off for three to six hours of work and then the parents and siblings would just leave. And so, you know, I got to thinking who's helping them. And that's what brought me to marriage and family therapy was, um, you know, some of that thinking in that path thinking I was going to work with special needs kids and their family. And then um, with the program that I did, uh, University of Southern Mississippi down in Hattiesburg, fantastic marriage and family therapy program. I would recommend it if anyone's looking into it. Um, They offered internships as a part of our graduate work there. And again, I mean, it's all just the Lord's work because my first year there, I found out that there was the option to intern at the Gratitude Program with Pine Grove, which is actually, I believe, the original program that Dr. Patrick Carnes started, or one of the original inpatient programs mm-hmm. that he started. Um, so he was the pioneer down there, got things going. I ended up getting an internship there um, during my graduate work. And I remember the first day I went, well, let me back up. Whenever they told me I was going to interview there, my program that I was in, I went and talked to our director and I was like, I think y'all have the wrong person. <laughs> Are y'all sure? <clears throat> you know, and she was like, just go interview, just see, you know, we know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they really did, but they were like, we know what we're doing. And so I go interview, I get it. And I remember my very first day uh, working there, I sat in a group one of the patients did their, a first step. Um, it, it was a pretty terrible story, but does his first step. And for some reason, I left that day and I went straight back to that director and I said, you know, thank you so much for putting me here and thinking that I could do this work. I love it. Like, yeah. this is what I want to do. Um, so fortunately, after that internship. Can you tell people what what you mean by first step just in that? Like, why was that so pivotal for you to see the... Well, I guess the person was doing a first step um, after having been caught with child pornography. Um, really great person, but just had made some, you know, not great decisions. And so sitting in that and actually hearing his story that brought him to where he was to make the decisions that he did um, really shifted my thinking. And I mean, because I was a young mid twenties woman going into the system. And this program was all men, 18 and up, pretty much majority middle-aged men. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll talk some about this, but I pretty much fit all of their arousal templates. Right. <laughs> and so it was like a small minnow walking <clears throat> into sharks is how it felt for me that yeah, first day. Yeah. And so hearing him and, and hearing past that, Um, I had a professor that would say it's hard to hate people from up close. Mm -hmm. And so actually getting up close to someone in their story, it just shifted things for me because he talked about, you know, his journey to what he, the behaviors that he was doing. And really, because the part of the first step is identifying that they're powerless to their addiction and, you know, passing that over to a higher power. 
Um, and so he was going through that journey and just identifying the areas that he was powerless in. And he incorporated some of his past, like traumas and those sorts of things as well. Um, and then the consequences of his behaviors too. So it was just really impactful. I probably sat, I, I was probably sweating, like, sitting in the <laughs> corner, like a rosacea flare up, <laughs> stressed yeah, right. to the max. Um, anyway, I would like love to have a snapshot of me. I can remember exactly where I was sitting. Um, and so then after that went and just was super grateful that they saw that I could do that work. Somehow got fortunate enough in that year, um, you know, really loved the staff there, really worked well with the staff there. A position happened to come available for me to be a primary therapist and ended up being able to stay on as a primary therapist uh, for that program and stayed there a number of, number of years. And through that, because it was a sex addiction treatment center, was able to go on and, and get my CSAT. Um, so thousands upon thousands of hours working specifically with sex addiction and betrayed partners. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, I mean, that's the journey. It feels like one I didn't choose, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like, I know I did. I didn't have to do the path that I did. Definitely wasn't an active decision, it feels, though. Um, if you would have told me 10 years ago I would be doing this, I probably would have ran for the hills. Um, it, I mean, I say it all the time. It's just the Lord, like, his guidance and, you know, Fortunately, I guess my trust in him or something, but my trust just to lean into that and yeah. where he was taking it because I, I love the work or yeah. else I wouldn't keep doing it. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's a key takeaway you're starting off with is just, you know, from a Christian perspective, mm -hmm. when you can understand where people have been, when you hear their story, when you actually disciple them and sit with them over mm -hmm. coffee or in therapy or in their life, then you see the patterns that led to what we would see on surface being an awful thing, mm -hmm. whether it's affairs or child pornography or pornography in general or mm -hmm. trafficking or, you know, being a pimp or whatever the situation is, we have this lens as humans and especially as Americans where we look at those things as worse behaviors and more gross and awful. And although they are terrible and they need consequence, when you actually get to know the person, Mm -hmm. Right. It never started off with that. That's what they wanted to be when they grew up. Right. You know? And that's what I say even to my clients. Now I'm like, I'm sure when you were 12, you weren't saying, Hey, I'm going to be addicted to pornography when I'm 35 and watch my marriage go to shambles mm -hmm. and end up having to spend thousands of dollars working on myself. And that's not your life dream, nope. you know? And so, but being able to sit down and one of the first things I, I do with my clients is a timeline and a trauma egg. And so, um, doing the trauma egg with them, I realized this pretty early on as, as an intern working, I started hearing parts of my story and their story. Mm -hmm. and, and so I was like, uh Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, Hmm. Uh, and so, but being able to hear like, well, this impacted, how did they end up in that seat? And I ended up in this one. Yeah. Right. And Over so the like, outliers, yeah, I was like, we're really not that different. Just some, some different paths got taken where you're sitting there and I'm sitting here. Mm -hmm. Um, so that really helped because, I mean, I'm sure like y'all have heard some really awful, terrible things, both that have happened to people and that people have done. Um, and whenever I remember, well, you were once a 10-year-old and this happened to you. Okay, I, I can feel that. I can have a lot more empathy for that. So it's right, just right. getting up close to people and not being afraid about that. 
That's good. Mm-hmm. And, That's and I mean, especially for, I mean, being a woman and that being scary. I mean, I, I always think super highly of you ladies who are BNC sets because it is a really different, scary world to walk into compared to for us. Mm-hmm. It's scary for different reasons, but just that, you know, that part is super brave. So mm-hmm. Thanks. I'm proud of you. Yeah. yeah. Brent, tell I, us about you, man. man I don't know if I can follow, follow that, up, that yeah. up. I just I don't have that story. Shouldn't have let ladies go first. <laughs> right. No. Um, uh, my story is much more short. Uh, I ended up, um, yeah, getting a job at the children's home and, uh, did MST for a little bit. And then we switched the program and uh, we're looking at options. And, uh, I think you had already went through, mm-hmm. I think, and, and did your CSAT and, and a few other people. And so it was presented as an opportunity. Um, I'd never thought about it, but I really do believe it was a God thing. Um, because I jumped on that, jumped on board in, what was it? 2016, I think March of 2016, mm-hmm. I went to Florida. Uh, for mod one and came back scared to death. I was like, what? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I, I think I actually talked to you. I'm yeah. like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was just really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, uh, so after that, it was just a, a multitude of things and, and, you know, so I definitely prayed about it and I'm like, is this something that I want to do? And I remember taking that time, uh, and, and saying like, I don't know, like I want to really make it a, a educated decision on this and pray about it. So so I can, you know, just follow with what the Lord has for me. And so it, it really turned into something that I'm so very thankful for because I've been able to help a lot of people, uh, since then, you know, going through and going through all the mods and, 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 you know, to where I'm at right now, it's just, it's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing to, you know, meet with people and, and get to that place where it's so much vulnerability, but so much healing can happen too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think um, p- people listening. So, CSAT is certified sex addiction therapist. It's through the it's a certification through the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals, ITAP for short. And so, it's a four module training. Mm-hmm. So you go, you know, mod one, it's five days. Mod two, you wait a little while and then do it, and you do. And then mod three, mod four, and then you have forty hours of consultation. I think something like that. Thirty. Thirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thirty hours of consultation during. Oh, I'm like, I don't remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you have another CSAT who's walking you through cases and doing these things. So it's, you know, for me, I felt like uh, kind of part one is the summary um, of what is sex addiction. Part two is betrayal trauma and how it affects the family. Part three is really heavy on trauma. And part four is kind of a summary of it all. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty good accurate. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, right. So <laughs> yeah. I've had to say this a few times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's like I felt like it was better than my master's degree. You know, because mm. it was just so specific, but it also covered a wide range of things. And then, you know, I can take alcohol, drugs, family systems, and kind of insert it, you know, into the MS, I mean, into the CSAT model because you're like, we're looking at sex addiction, but it, it all plays out the same. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's talk about that for a second. Why do you think, um, well, first, what, you know, we just said what a CSAT is, but why is that so distinctly different or why are there so few CSATs? So I think there's only like, 2700 or something in the mm-hmm. country not a lot i right. didn't know that that was i didn't know it was that low it, it might be larger i might be making that completely up patrick karn's gonna email me this afternoon Billy. there's a lot more um, right but, but it's, it's a low it's, it's a still super low, low yeah, it's number, a pretty low number yeah yeah i need like a uh i need chip to be able to like google stuff and fact yeah, check. yeah fact check fact me chip check. make Can a little google and see how many AC sets there are uh yeah um I mean, there's, there's just so much differing opinions on is sex addiction real? Is it not real? 
you know, and, and I see that quite often, um, through various avenues. It's just, you know, people, people don't necessarily agree with the sex addiction model. Um, you know, and, and it's just really all over the place. And so a lot of differing opinions on that, but Mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, I know when we, when I got it, it was 2015 ish, Mm -hmm. I think, or 14 and like eight, the, um, psychology today, like would not publish anything about sex addiction. They were real pro pornography in some articles, you Mm -hmm. know, you know, um, sex workers, you know, all those kind of things. Um, and so, yeah, there's that tension of the world saying, you know, well, hold on the BDSM, all these things are perfectly relevant, fine things to do, you know, and then you get the training and it's like, well, most of this comes out of trauma and most of this comes out of like early abuse and early neglect and all these things. And, and so, yeah, it is an interesting kind of thing to, to walk through just in the CSAT world. And they were arguing at my, I think mod four for me about whether porn addiction and sex addiction are the same or separate. Yeah. I think that started in like my mod one. Yeah. I had a pretty feisty bunch of people. Can you talk to me about that difference or to people about that difference? The difference in porn and sex addiction. Yeah, so I want people to understand that not everybody who watches porn is is a sex sex addict. addict. Yeah, Yeah, do do we believe that, I guess? That's what I'm asking. I do. Okay. I lean into that. Um, Brent, Brent, what do you think? Uh, What, that porn addiction and sex addiction are obviously different? Yeah. Uh, I I would agree. Okay. Yeah. I think porn addiction, the way I talk about it with my clients is like falls under the umbrella of sex Mm -hmm. addiction because it's still if we get really scientific with it still playing with those sexual neuropathways absolutely and so that's where i think it falls under it sometimes what happens though with the different i see a lot of betrayed partners and so a good many of the partners in their mind i think say oh well my husband's a porn addict so it's not that bad as this person's husband who acted out sexually outside of the relationship. Whenever we get digging, we realize it has the same impact. Mm -hmm. And so I say that to say for the sex addict or the porn addict, it has the same impact. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I've seen, and I saw this a good bit whenever I was working inpatient is so many of the guys that I worked with started out as porn addicts. And then they were like, I would never cross that line. I would never cross that line. And you know, my answer was always yet. You won't do that yet. Yeah, um, I agree. And so, so many of them <laughs> would start out with just pornography, and then the next thing they know, they're you know downtown looking for a prostitute to to hook up with, and and they think, how did I get here? Well, look at what you were watching. It wasn't it wasn't good enough anymore. It wasn't giving you the hit anymore. So that's why I put it under the same umbrella. Um, not necessarily the, the exact same thing because of the behaviors, but definitely under the same umbrella, the way that I see it. Mm-hmm. Brent, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I, when she said that, I was like, that's exactly how I view it. You know, just as a, it's a sort of this subcategory in a way, but it definitely can lead to further stuff down the road. Um, you know, but, but I think uh, also to just make this known, you know, there's a lot of, uh, people who may look at pornography, but it wouldn't technically be pornography addiction. And so there's obviously a distinction there. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there has to, it has to be causing a significant amount of issues. You know, maybe if you're looking at pornography three hours a day, every day of the week, then that's obviously a huge problem. So that's one of the factors. So there's a lot of different factors that play into it. Um, and I, I do see when people schedule and, and, you know, or, or, you know, kind of looking at a possibility of having a pornography addiction, uh, there tends to be, um, 
you know, this overgeneralization of, oh, if you look at porn, then obviously you're a porn addict. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just, it's so much more complex than that. Well, it's the same as, you know, something like alcohol. Well, because you have a drink or you drink alcohol, does that make you an alcoholic? No. Right. Right. And so, and you might cope poorly with it. Right. You might cope poorly with it, but Dr. Carnes has come up with, going back to being, you know, kind of this debatable thing in the psychology world, he's come up with, hopefully for the next DSM, is working to get sex addiction in there mm-hmm. um, or something, you know, impulsivity, whatever. Which is unreal that it's not in there. Right. Especially based on the last 10 years of culture. With pro- I mean, it's a process disorder. And yeah. so even that process disorders, right, they have eating disorders, but not the other ones in there. So anyway... Um, but I mean, all that to say, yeah, I mean, it is looking at how's it impacting your life. And it's a whole list of criteria that therapists can go through and that CSATs are provided mm-hmm. to say, okay, is it, is it just problematic? Is this just impacting your morals? Which I see a lot with Christian men, even women, mm-hmm. or is this actually an addiction? Are there these things? Yeah. Last week or week before last, I had the center for sexual exploitation on and she said um that they did a study recently and that the girls scored a point higher in viewing pornography in the last month than the boys did Mm -hmm. and that was the first time ever that they had seen that type of statistic Mm -hmm. and she sent me the links and the articles and all that kind of stuff so if anybody wants them just message us in but um because of the access right it's just increased the women watching it and then a lot of teen girls especially are watching it because they want to keep up with what their boyfriend's watching or their husband's mm-hmm. watching or whatever. And so, yeah, we've seen this huge uptick. Now I'm not saying that's across the board that they're watching it more, but I think the last that I saw was like 36% of Protestant women in the last you know month mm-hmm. have, have seen pornography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean a huge uh, uptick since COVID. You oh know? yeah. I and mean, that was a huge shift up. Yeah. 18%, I think something yeah. like that, like porn up stats or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think you and I have talked about this, yeah. that whenever COVID hit, um, within probably that last summer, I heard this stat that, uh, and I could be getting it off, but it's still probably true. Uh, Pornhub, just that one website had more hits a day mm-hmm. than Amazon, Facebook, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And y'all, I was on Amazon a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. You know, I'm thinking whenever I heard that, I thought, oh my gosh. It's a lot of porn. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh no. And so anyway, but just like comparing it to that, think about how much of a problem even just social media is. Mm-hmm. Well, then compare that to that one website. That's, right. I mean, that's just well, one place. And that's just Pornhub. Now mm-hmm. you have OnlyFans, which made a huge impact last year. And yeah, it, this is really, a whole new thing. Yeah. It's a whole mm-hmm. new thing. And, and I think COVID really, you know, it's, pushed that forward um you know I, I don't know any statistics on only fans but i know it's very very um you know lucrative uh, lucrative for mm-hmm. the people that are doing it and it, it's just a whole different different level <laughs> my, my favorite thing and look me and olivia talk about this all the time just how you can laugh at stuff as csat so you know if you're listening and you hear us laughing about something and it seems crass it's just because we do this all day long but my favorite is the facebook ads for only fans and it's like workout videos and sports and like you know teaching you to do whatever and it's like (laughs) that's like one percent of what is on there right but it gets you in there right it's the gateway drug to Mm -hmm. to only fan ads but it's like they're not quite crossing the line of like hey let's put pornography so for people not listening only fans is a website where you can have people come on 
pay as little as two dollars a month or a day or whatever it is to kind of view whatever material you're putting out and it's all very sexually exploitive and so you can have that's the other increase is you have women who can make a guy do something for money and so right. only fans mm-hmm. is prostitution it's it, you're right it's, mm-hmm. it's an entirely different level yeah. so Pornhub and OnlyFans are completely different yeah. right um, because you have that interaction and then you have you know a lot of people who would you know uh, maybe not engage in prostitution normally but they're doing it virtually uh, and then the same right, right and, and then sorry go ahead no I was gonna say you have you know uh, you know this this power versus money mm-hmm. and you know people are on there and you know, trying to get them to do stuff or, you know, whatever it may be. Well, and it's not much different than webcamming, right, which yeah. falls under the sex addiction umbrella as well. Right. The way that I see it with all of that, it's not much different than webcamming. Um, so anyway, it's, I mean, it's, I see it as the same no, with OnlyFans. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's webcamming. It's just, it's, it's just got a you new know, name, not as sketchy of a name. Yeah. And I mean, again, the whole culture was like, well, you do you, you know, if you can make that money and people are going to pay for it, do it. And mm-hmm. it's like, again, it's, it's pretending that that's not negatively impacting that person. Mm-hmm. You know, that the person, yeah, they're making money, but they're still selling themselves to strangers anonymously, you know, but they're, they're on both ends, right? You have this disassociation. You have people who are watching it and paying for it and buying it and wouldn't go buy a prostitute on the street. But you also have women who would never be strippers now stripping because it's disconnected. They're not standing on a, you know, they're not dancing on a pole on a stage with a bunch of strangers who can grab them and hurt them. They're now able to do that same thing. Right. I mean, it's dissociation through the camera. I mean, you're just looking at the camera and there's not a actual person on the other side. Then you just see the comments and the interactions, but you know, it, it, it's a, just a different, different mm-hmm. vibe altogether. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So we got real deep real quick. Yep. Um, so Tell me what makes up a sex ad- addict, like somebody who becomes a sex addict. I mean, it's like I said just a couple minutes ago. Um, I I run through like very basic criteria in my head. So I start looking at um, how are your behaviors impacting your relationship if they're married. Um, even if they are married, if they're not married, I look at how is it impacting your friendships, your social mm-hmm. life. How is it impacting your occupation? Um, again, I've heard some wild stories about how it's impacted those things. And then start looking at, okay, whenever you first started these behaviors to where you are now, sitting in my office, right. what's been the escalation is the big thing that I look at that starts to help me classify and give the the name addict. So um, you might start, you know, looking at magazines or softcore stuff, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you start looking at pornography, and then you buy a prostitute, and mm-hmm. then you buy a couple prostitutes, and then you start having an affair. Mm-hmm. Right. And if it's like, if we go back to that pornography addiction, it's looking at, okay, so you started out with, I don't mean, like, these are some sex addict words, but you start out with more vanilla pornography, and now here you are on X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's how did I get here? Um, how long you talked about that? Is it three hours a day, every day a week? Or is it, you know, what does that look like? Um, that's kind of the tough part, especially living down in the Bible belt is I'll have people come sit in my office and say, I have a porn addiction. I can't stop. Like, okay, well talk to me about it. And you know, they're a Christian and you know, believer and, and they watch porn once every six months. Right. Right. And so that looks a little different. For me, I'm like, okay, there might be a morality piece there going. So it just takes some conversation and asking questions mm-hmm. that I, I would say are 
super comfortable to most of the public. Um, no, it was like you said, I mean, once you say it and talk about it so much, it just right. isn't that big of a deal um, to talk about, which I'm really grateful that it's gotten that way. Um, as far as, you know, in my work to be able to talk with people to help them. Uh, but I look for like escalation, impact on occupation, how much money are you spending? Uh, how's it impacting relationships? Value system. Uh, value system. Right. Yeah. Is it dangerous? Is it not? Right. Yeah. Those sorts of things. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say all of those things, uh, but I'm also really careful of using labels as well because right. I, you said the, uh, you know, the Christian guy who looks at it every, once every six months. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very intentional uh, when I get new people, regardless of if you're a quote addict or not an addict, you know, if your goal is to not look at it and engage in it and right. really do some work on your life, then we're going to work on that. You know, so it's not about the label. It's about what are your goals and what are we working towards? Mm -hmm. Is this something that you want to quit? Is this something that you really desire to just not be in your life mm -hmm. anymore and really push forward to that? You know, I would agree with that. I'm really careful with it, mm -hmm. too. That's why, it, you know, it takes. I would agree. Uh, whenever you're saying that, I was thinking if it's causing the person distress. Right. Right. If they come in and watch porn and it's not a problem for them. Right. Like, OK, I'll back away from that for now. Right. But if they're coming in and it's every so often and it's causing them some distress, that's the right. other thing that stands out. Yeah, I would say it's such a tightrope walk because it's in, when you start seeing the rest of the people in their life, that's when the addict label is good and bad. Because right. there is some level that they need to understand, the spouse or the husband or the wife or the kids or whoever's impacted, that this is not going to just go away. If mm -hmm. it's a guy who watches it once every six months then you do some therapy, it should be kind of knocked out, you know, um, maybe another six months, you know, but for those who are struggling with full on addiction and they're in the midst of it, there's going to be a relapse plan. There's going to be, and we'll get to that stuff in a minute, but you know, so I think it's sometimes helpful for them to understand this, uh, you know, calling you an addict. It isn't, isn't you, you're not, you know, you shouldn't identify as an addict, but at the same time, I need to be aware that there's some neurological things that are science that are, broken that need to be healed and that's not going to just it's not a choice yeah does that make sense right yeah it, it's not like oh should i eat white bread or wheat bread you know it's if these things aren't in place and you're not far, far al al enough along in recovery then you're going to slip up you know mm -hmm. i was talking to somebody this morning it's like he was like well you know, i haven't had any issues and you know da da da, da and, and then i went out of town and i was freaking out you know, and I'm like, okay, well, what's your three circle? And did you, you know, put things in, in perspective and, you know, call somebody and, you know, all the things we know to do. Um, and he's like, no, and I'm like, right. So it's like an alcoholic. You can not drink for six months, but then you end up in a bar with some friends and oh man, all those desires come back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, what people need to understand when it comes to addiction is that that neuropathway is always there. It can be pretty deadened and, and removed but if you put all the right combination of things in place, then mm -hmm. I talk about it with my clients, like thinking about a ditch because those neuron pathways are dug out and carved out in your brain. And so I think about it as like, okay, if I have a ditch that's already dug when it rains, that's where the water is naturally going to go mm -hmm. is back to that ditch that's been dug. Well, we need to dig another ditch and not give that one as much attention. Keep digging in that one. Right and give some more attention over here into digging new ditches because those aren't working for, for the water anymore. Mm -hmm, right. And so, and so that takes time. Exactly what you're saying. Right. 
I, I love and I love I love analogies. Yeah. I have I have an analogy I use, and, and and we were talking about how I didn't have that much of a Lake Charles accent, but it's about to come out. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I talk to clients, you know, who are local, and, and you know, oh, and I use a Boudin analogy, like okay, well you, you know, you 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 say okay, this isn't good for me, which is really not, and then so you, you say I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But what happens when you pass by Rabbitohs and then you see you smell it, and you're like. Oh man, I've not had boudin in like two years. It smells so good. I'm gonna go, you know. And so just that immediate, you know, response of, oh well, the neural pathway's still mm-hmm. there. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic when it comes to the brain and, and addiction that people I think underestimate a lot. Right. But yeah, the, I mean, I think the main goal for all three of us, and I know y'all would both say this, is that alleviating shame is the main process of not labeling. Right. And so talk to me a little bit about, you know, calling it an intimacy disorder versus addiction. I don't know if you do that or how you. I'll, I don't even, I don't know what I do. I'm just sitting here trying to think. Sometimes I joke, if you've watched The Office, I joke, I'm like Michael Scott. I'm like, I start a sentence and hope it ends somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's it. I've joked that I've done that as a therapist for years. Um I look at it as like an intimate intimacy disorder. What I really look at it as is an attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that's really what I've noticed in people over the years. And when there's an attachment disorder, there's mm-hmm. going to be intimacy issues. Right. And so I really lean into like with the assessments that we can give a CSAT, um, the experiences in close relationships grid. Right. Uh, I really lean into looking at, and that's also how I was trained. So it lines up really well CSAT work and MFT work, I think marry really well oh, together. Definitely. And so I view it more as an attachment issue. And with attachment, there's going to be intimacy issues. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, that's good. Brent, can you talk a little bit about, so we talked about like if you're a clinician looking at someone and saying, well, what's a sex addiction? What's a sex addict and somebody who struggles with attachment or intimacy? Can you tell me a little bit of the the makeup of kind of their childhood? Is there a typical thing that happens for them when they're little? You know, kind of what what is the the uh, the kind of preset things that happen? So if you're a parent, you're like, I don't want my kid turning out to be a sex addict. Or if you're a person struggling with sex addiction, under to look at your childhood, what's what are some of the kind of common themes? Um, I, I mean, I just I think you know, with the people that I work with. Um, there's just been a lot of um i can't parents just taking things for granted and and not being intentional with their kids and so these clients now are grown-ups and you know weren't invested in um or their parents may not have even been there or there's just you know um i, I see it so often uh where it's either one parent both parents you know they're just not either involved or there's just some kind of trauma early on um you know there there also is obviously uh you know, uh, you know, trauma maybe from um, sexual abuse stuff like that too, which kind of makes a segue into different addictive behaviors too. So, so I, I mean, there it, it varies, um, but usually, um, you know, it's not necessarily a secure attachment mm-hmm. most of the time. I, I, there are always going to be exceptions, um, you know, and I, I definitely have had people uh, score in the secure realm of the on the ECR as well that mm-hmm. weren't you know, necessarily uh, struggling with narcissism or anything. Yeah. You know, so I'm just different, different things happen in life at different points. You know, a lot of times it's childhood. Sometimes it's later on. 
you know, from other types of trauma. But I, I really do think it's definitely rooted in some sort of trauma somewhere, even if it's big or little or, you know, consistently over time. Yeah. What would you say? I, I agree. Um, what I've seen is a good bit of family makeup. Um, I've worked with some individuals, though, that have come, whenever I've explored it with them, what appear to be fairly healthy family dynamics. Those are very few and far between. And then whenever I get to talking with them about it, it's the the individuals that were surrounding them. So, like, teachers, coaches, um, ministers, those sorts of things, that something happened with them. And they didn't necessarily label what happened with them as abusive or traumatic mm. Um, they were, uh, and really they were taken advantage of. So while they may not, they may can say, well, you know, my parents were really healthy. I saw a good marriage, yada, yada. Outside of that, it's, well, these things were actually happening to me and I didn't realize that I, that would be labeled as mm -hmm. traumatic. Those are really few and far between. So I like with that secure attachment piece, um, if I see a secure attachment on an ECR, I'm pretty direct. And Can so you I'll, tell them what an ECR is? You that, both? The experiences in close relationship scale. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that measures the attachment style. So you've got secure attachment, anxious attachment, avoidant, or anxious avoidant. Um, and so looking at that, if I see someone is secure and I've known them for a little bit, I'll typically let them know that I, you know, call BS basically mm -hmm. on that and talk through why I think that with them. And then they can work to find themselves once I talk that in the other areas. Um, now they may have that with a spouse, but thinking about how attachment forms in childhood, it really can, can bring up some good conversation. But I, I mean, typically there is some sort of childhood abuse in some way that's happened or neglect that's happened to the, to, you know, the adult person that I'm seeing. Um, one of the directors that I, I worked with in Mississippi had a great thing that she would say is that the war on addiction is really the war on childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that just seems really fitting for most of the people that I see. That's good. Yeah, I, th I think for me, um, you're both right. I mean, it's a, a, a wide range. But I'd say the general theme is people think they had a great childhood, you know, and that their parents were great. And, and they may have been well-intentioned. But in the, you know, and, and we all kind of typically see people who are still alive. So they could be anywhere from, let's say, adults 40 to you know, 65, 70, who were dealing with addiction. It's like they grew up in a specific era, you know, where dads weren't emotional and weren't connected. And so a lot of times I've seen, you know, a lot of low warmth, mm -hmm. a lot of rigid, you know, parenting, um, or just on the opposite end where it's like, nope, like you said, Brent, like nobody's there. And so there's no attachment and there's all this disconnection. Right. There's just really bad boundaries around affection mm -hmm. and security. And then, you know, you have the culture of military folks being deployed and, you know, having magazines and having the culture of, of that. Um, and then you move into the 90s when the Internet hits. Right. And so it's like you still have all these family systems. I think that's so good, like the war on you know childhood trauma, because that's the, the kind of primer, mm -hmm. you know, is the childhood trauma, the lack of attachment, the abuse that's going on. Um, and it doesn't even have to be big T traumas. It can be right. these little T traumas. And then the 90s, the Internet hits. And then in the last 12 years, the phone hits. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what the makeup of 20 to 30-year-olds are in the next year because they have all the same things that these 
these adults are really struggling with that's destroyed their lives, except for now they have steroids injected into their culture, you know, when it comes to sex addiction and all those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a whole different dynamic now, you know? And I mean, I, I think. Right. Cause um, you could be great parents. Right. And be attached and be attuned, but you give your kid a phone at 12 and you know, you're just, and, and really what's going on is, you know, um, not to segue into phone addiction, but I mean, that's oh, really, a, that's really, a, that's a really a big thing. Um, because you're constantly looking for that dopamine rush. You're looking for the like, you're looking for, you know, this new thing and you just keep scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. We are addicted as a people, we are addicted to a scroll now. And mm-hmm. so it just, it keeps, you know, getting in one form or another form or another form. Um, and, and so, like you said, I mean, you could have a great family that are trying to be intentional and they're trying to really do the right thing. Um, you know, and, and then their kid has a phone and, you know, is just kind of going off the deep end with, you know, whatever it may be, porn or social media and what, you know, whatnot. So, Mm -hmm. well, and that goes into some of the attachment intimacy piece too, because whenever the phone comes into play and especially whenever pornography comes into play, I was just having this conversation with one of my clients is it creates that pseudo connection Mm -hmm. that they think that they are connecting with people because they're seeing these people online or communicating with them virtually. So they think that they're connecting with people, but all the research shows that connection is actually sitting with someone face to face, Mm -hmm. getting that right brain to right brain interaction. And through the phone, you aren't going to get that. It's more of a pseudo connection. And so it's, you know, I mean, it just sets kids up into that. I mean, you know, and I think it's in mod one, maybe they talk about contemporary versus classic sex mm-hmm. addicts. So it really sets them up for that more contemporary right. path of um, just not knowing how to connect with people when they get face to face, which increases stress and anxiety. And now we start seeing social anxiety. So what are you going to do for that? Go back to where you know how you can connect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just really, I agree. I'd, it's going to be really interesting and, and probably pretty sad to see what this next like upcoming of kids is going to be looking like. Yeah, it's going to be a train wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was telling the staff on Monday, like if you're, you know, there's going to be a point, and I would challenge any clinician listening to this, any pastor listening to this, anybody who's leading people and teenagers, you know, the next 10 years, we're only going down. And that's not to be hopeless. I think we, we have the ability and God has the ability to change hearts and minds and do all kinds of things. But based on statistics and, and how many uh, CSETs there are, which Chip couldn't find the national number, but it's like a hundred and something, you know, 500 square miles of Shreveport. So mm-hmm. that's nothing. I mean, I'm the only one in Lake Charles. Right. And in, in, in between Houston and, and Baton Rouge. Yeah. We have people drive here from Longview, from Texarkana, from Alexandria, you know, because we're the only ones doing it. And when I started, I think I was the only one in like 300 square miles of Shreveport. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a great thing that we've had a hundred more people kind of join the, the group in the last decade, but that's a hundred people out of thousands and thousands of clinicians. Mm-hmm. And my problem is, is that, if you're seeing a per now that used to be the like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you, you didn't have to be a CSAT because you could see people who it wasn't affecting, let's say. But now the, the weird thing will be this next decade is that the, the 20 to 30 year olds who are going to need therapy in the next five to 10 years, they're all going to have these issues because of statistics. Mm-hmm. Most of the boys are going to watch hardcore pornography and had some addiction. Most of the girls are going to be struggling with self identity and, and self harm. And if you're not equipped as a clinician 
then you miss the whole thing. You don't ask the right questions. You don't dig into that childhood trauma, that those arousal templates and all those things. And it just scares me for the masses. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's hard enough to get people in therapy, but then you get people in therapy and they're not with somebody who's trained and we know the problems that that creates. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've encountered where you were referencing this a little bit earlier, but where they sought out a therapist and it was that more, well, you do you, this is the way that you're exploring yourself Mm -hmm. mentality and real big eye roll to that um, whenever it comes to this piece because it, it, I think before going that route it I would encourage people to really explore what that's doing for them before just saying okay well this this is fine these things that you're doing seem healthy right to really because I've had people sit down with I think what they thought was a CSAT and it ended up being a sex therapist which are great and they're needed and for someone that's struggling with a sex addiction, it just like told them, hey, I'm fine to do what I'm doing. And so it's also, I think, for the people that are struggling to be educated on the type of therapist that they are seeking out. If they need a sex therapist for what, what's going on in their life, great, seek that out. They're very helpful, mm-hmm. really knowledgeable in what they're doing. And if it's something that you're struggling with and finding distressing and impacting relationships, mm-hmm seek out someone that may have even if it says sex addiction therapist it you know might not be the thing it might not be an addiction right. it might just be an impulsivity or something that causes distress and you know we know what we're doing with that yeah at least i like to think we do yeah and we have we i mean you brent talk about the the kind of scales that we can use and uh mr uh what's it called the uh mri yeah not the yeah, MRI. mri we need to do mris on me right now um no the uh SDI. SDI, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, brain went blank. Um, you're talking which which scales you're talking about? Well, any of the ones that we can use on the website, like Recovery Zone and all that stuff. Like it's you, you know, we have a unique list and group of things that we can use that other people can't. Right. I mean, um, and I mean, we have the ability to do the sexual dependency inventory. We can't talk today, mm-hmm. um, and and so that's what you know. One thing that that I try to do. Um, relatively quickly on um maybe obviously not the first session but but uh even before then you know i would encourage anybody that's kind of questioning they can go take the uh sexual addiction screening tool the sast the sast uh dash r uh <laughs> on um on the itap website or is it on recovery zone i'm not sure uh, it's the i think it's itap just yeah, it's, it's through itap yeah it. um they just changed all kind of stuff recently yeah. so i'm still trying to get used to it but um but anyway you know i i think there's there's tons of different tools that we can use and and obviously if you have somebody that's not you know trained or doesn't have access to those things um you know you're you're almost taking a shot in the dark sometimes um you know and just to couple off what you said about sex therapy um you know there's a there's a lot of controversy uh, between the two groups um but there's a time and place for both you know Mm -hmm. and and i think that there there's definitely people um who have struggled with sexual addiction um, but in other ways could also benefit from sex therapy as well, you know, then uh, tell me what sex therapy is for those that don't know, uh, sex therapy. And, and I don't want to botch this cause this is not the actual definition, but it, it's just, you know, working on trying to figure out how to have a healthier sex life mm-hmm. and what that looks in a healthy way versus, you know, any kind of dysfunctionality. So correct me if I'm wrong. I think that was pretty good. I'm not a sex therapist. So right. that's good to me. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, 
Alexandra Katahakis is that? She's right. Like, That's right. She's, she's like probably cringing like right now. <laughs> cringing in California. <laughs> like who's botching sex therapy? <laughs> no, but she's amazing, and that's mm-hmm. one thing that I do want to, you know, us to do here is is to get some people trained, you know, in that same thing because it's like you have people come in and deal with the dysfunction, but then you know I do the best I can to tell them what healthy sex is, and but everybody has a different. I mean, that's why it's difficult because it's like from a faith perspective, you know, as Christians, sex is great. Right, that's the truth. God has given it to us to have to find connection, to find intimacy, to procreate, to bring our kids in the world. But we have this huge culture that sex, just in general, has such heavy shame. Right. You know, I was saying, uh, you know, just the recent, you know, most of uh, the last ten years, the stats have been like one in three women and one in five men have been sexually abused by eighteen. So it's like you have all these kids, these minors who have experienced sexual trauma they very few of them go to therapy well, how do you think they're going to have healthy sex lives mm-hmm. you know and so i i find this 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 uh huge shame on guys struggling with sexual sin and brokenness and porn and all these kind of things but i think i see just as much dysfunction on on the spouse's side oh, yeah. of not desiring sex or being turned off to sex or being sexually anorexic you know and um and those two things just pairing together you know, I say all the time, like your guy who struggles with porn, you know, every six months, it's like, let's say once a month, right? It's like, Hey, you know, every once in a while I'll screw up and I'll have my phone or I'll do this. And then I end up slipping up and then I'm like, okay, what's going on? Well, my wife doesn't touch me. You know, she doesn't, she's not kind to me. She talks poorly to me, you know, and then they come in for session and for four months, you can just be talking about how bad the porn was, but Mm -hmm. both things are damaging to the relationship. Right. You know, and I'm not saying that pornography is less than I think with pornography, it can feel like it can feel like an affair. It's, you know, an affair for most people in their minds. And so that can be super traumatic. Um, so that's a little different, but the reality is, is with healthy sex, you have to be working on all of it. The couple has to be trying to figure out how do we both take responsibility for our, our, you know, um, responsibility in the cycle. Um, it's not your fault that your husband or your wife cheated or watches porn. But what's going on with me is that it is my view of it healthy right. outside of them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had this picture in my head of an umbrella. I mean, it really, you have to work on multiple layers here, right? You know, or even viewing it from like a systems perspective, like there's multiple different systems going on that you need to address. It's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do a lot of work with the partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so I end up I end up working with the betrayed partners a good bit, and the way that I frame it to them, and this is some of the trauma egg work because I even have my partners do trauma eggs, um, and if I get my couple together, I'll have them share them with each other um, once we are safe. Uh, but anyway, so looking at the roles that they've played in their family, and then look at okay, how is that role playing out with your partner now? Mm-hmm. So like if I have a partner that's a fixer, for example. Okay, how is you? How are you trying to fix your husband's pornography addiction or webcamming, whatever it may be, which really just pushes him away, right? Not saying that they're the cause of it, but what role are you playing? Really trying to appease your own anxiety, your own things that are going on, and how is that impacting your relationship with your spouse? So I mm-hmm. look at it as like a role uh, and a responsibility. Right. And, and I'll, I'll just say this when I'm in session with people, you know, let's say the husband is saying, well, my wife won't, you know, that's one of the things through the work. It's like, well, they don't have, you know, I don't have sex enough, so I have to watch porn. It's like, no, mm-hmm. you're fully responsible to control yourself regardless of the circumstances. I get that that's difficult and that makes it 
you know, harder for you to not do. But at the end of the day, you have to take responsibility for you. And then if I had the spouse in here, that's the betrayed partner, right? We have to say, okay, I get that this was very harmful for you and that this was, you know, but how are we going to move forward? And so it's like, it's such a dance of getting them to both take responsibility without feeling shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm just thinking like with the betrayed partners that I've worked with, what I'll see is whenever the addict, and I'm just going to use that language. Stephanie Carnes has actually switched it to participating partner and betrayed partner mm. to not label the addiction. Um, I like that. But yeah. with, so I've tried to change my language with that, but with the participating partner, when they start reaching out for help, then I'll see the betrayed partner. All of a sudden, their behaviors will, it, it's like a, will start acting out. Mm-hmm. It's like a thermostat. So the participating partner is resetting the thermostat to 70. Well, they've been at 72. And so the betrayed partner's not, ah, you get back up here with me. This is where we're used to being. So then I have to talk with them about, okay, so the amount of money that you spent last month or, you gaining weight or, um, you know, you blocking in the bed with pillows. Mm -hmm. Are you doing that out of fear? Are you doing that out of punishment? Um, are you doing that out of a trauma response? Like having to explore the behaviors that they're doing because it is trying to like find this balance in the relationship again where they've lived in chaos and now we're trying to shift that and just bring them, to this new shift, this new temperature for the couple. Mm-hmm. Brent, you had something? Uh, I wasn't. I was going to say. Um, you know, I mean, it, it really could be any or all of that. You know, anger. Um, you know, just fear. You know, there's a lot of fear. You know, so it really just depends. You know, and it's great to explore that with, you know, with the partner as well. Yeah, I think the unique thing about it is when you when you're a betrayed partner and it, you have to realize that what is it, eighty something percent of them have. Like PTSD, PTSD. Time. Yeah, yeah, just a, a training with Dr. Kevin Skinner, and it's it, the numbers are um, really, really sad mm-hmm. for the partners. Really sad, right? And the the likelihood, like if we're look, looking at adverse childhood experience, not to go like too far down this rabbit hole. No, go ahead. But um, if we're looking at adverse childhood experiences of a betrayed partner. Uh, who's experiencing PTSD symptoms after discovery from the participating partner, they will experience PTSD symptoms less than partners who have also, who have experienced gaslighting Mm. from the participating partner. And so those experience the symptoms stronger than those that have, you know, an ACEs score, uh, adverse childhood experiences. And so that's part of what makes it really difficult. I think for the partner, when the participating partner, the addict, is starting to seek out help, they don't believe it, right? Because of the gaslighting and rightly that's so. happened. Yeah, yeah. Because um, that trust has been. Uh, somebody said, you know, trust is uh, lost in buckets and gained in drips. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's such a good. That quote, is good. You know, yeah, quote. it's a great one. But it is that. about eighty percent experience PTSD symptoms. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's tough. Um, I think. It makes me, I'm going to go on a tangent for a second, but it makes me think why, okay, why is it, like how do we change this? I guess that's where my brain goes. It's like how do we prepare young women, young men to understand sex and healthy sex in a way? Because I think that's the missing piece that I've talked about a lot is that sexual neglect idea 
Um, and so if, if kids don't understand that other people are going to, and not young kids, but as they grow right in their teenage years and their young adulthood, that other people are going to have porn addiction. They're going to have struggles with lust. They're going to have trauma. They're going to have these things. Those don't have anything to do with you. You know, they don't have anything to do with your worth and value. They don't have anything to do with like the, the way that you can have healthy sex or not healthy sex. You need to be working on what's happened to you and, and what's happened in your past and working through those things. Cause I think one of the things that happens is, is, you know, I've had people who struggle with pornography and it could be female. I have a lot. When we say men and women, we just kind of interchange those. But you, let's say you have a female who, who tells her husband or gets caught watching pornography and the husband gets mad and tells her to leave. Well, that's pretty unlikely to happen. Like that's a pretty low thing. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen a lot of things happening is a, a woman catches her husband watching pornography and it's, you know, let's say it's a low number. It's a guy who watched it once a month and then he gets kicked out and has to go live somewhere. I get that trauma response. But my question is that we have to do and we all do this work is to get the, the spouse to ask the question of why am I so overwhelmed by them having a struggle? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why is this, why am I so floored by it? Because we've never talked about it. You know, we've been married 10 years and we didn't talk about pornography in the beginning. We didn't even question these things. We just assumed that this would never happen. And so what I find is that we have to go back into like the richness of, Hey, we both kind of committed to this thing, not knowing what we were doing and not equipped. And now this thing's been dropped in the middle of it and it's blown the whole thing up. And so what I see a lot is once we get, I mean, this might take three years, right? right. Like third year, we're talking about this stuff, but mm -hmm. the spouse will go, Oh my gosh. Yeah. We never had a chance, you know, like this is not his fault. I was enabling him by letting him do whatever I was enabling him by, you know, letting him, you know, do his thing and not holding him accountable. Like that worked for me because I didn't know how to be married and I didn't want to, you know, deal with that. And then you start finally getting real shame reduction because the couples are mutually both saying, Hey, look, let's not blame each other. Let's not figure out whose fault it is. Let's just repair our own stuff. And mm -hmm. that's when it gets really pretty. But right. like, man, that takes a long time. Yeah. To get from the past to the here and now. Right. And have this, you know, present slash future focus. You know, that, that's it, sometimes it does take a while. Yeah. And they say it, you know, two to three years is the recovery process for sex addiction. And, and mm -hmm. you tell people that and they get really overwhelmed oh. with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's like I said, I do a good bit of work with couples and I, th I think about those and I say to mine pretty often whenever they're in that blaming place, I'm like, okay, y'all right now, what does it matter? Who's right? Like, why are, why are we fighting for that? Let's just take a step back and breathe and look at what you're bringing to the table because it is, I mean, you use the word blaming so much of that starts to happen, especially with a couple that's been together for 10 years or 15 years. It's, you didn't tell me about this. You didn't do that. You didn't do this. Then, you know, that comes back on the partner, whoever's talking. So just that can get really messy really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so if you're not, if you're not trained right properly, then how do you, you know, you have to understand this huge foundation of what most partners are going to be doing and what the trauma is. Cause I've, I've had people come to us and go, well, we saw this other therapist, but she just basically shamed me you know, and talked about her marriage and her husband and their yep. things and projected all of this stuff onto the client because they didn't understand, you know, I don't know if y'all have seen that. Oh yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I have them say, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've had them say, well, they just told me I needed to leave my husband. Right. Yes. Like, what? <laughs> you know, it was just, 
and I was like, what questions were asked to get you to that point? Um, but you know, I was told I just need to leave my husband, um, that I need to get out, that I need to kick him out. And that's not what the person that I'm sitting with is desiring at all. Mm -hmm. You know, their desire is to, to heal the relationship and rebuild it and repair. And I've had a number of them, um, even outside of sex addiction, say that I saw this therapist and I was talking to him about my husband and they, they tell me, I just need to leave him. Yeah. I literally had that happen a couple months ago, like verbatim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's super common. Yeah. I think that would, I mean, the dip, deeper level of that is the, um, you know, therapist not being trauma informed and not having any tra- tra- training in trauma. And so you, you know, you work up here and mm-hmm. nowadays I just don't think that you can afford to do that. You know, I think the culture is so traumatized and so disconnected. And like you said, Olivia, um, you know, the phone has completely desensitized people to so many things, mm-hmm. you know, I mean the fact that any teenager is allowed to have TikTok and dance, you know, with no clothes on provocatively and their parents are like, that's just what kids do. Right. That's the most desensitizing thing. Preteens. Yeah. Preteens. Kids. Yeah. 11 and 12 year olds. Mm-hmm. Even younger. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's three year olds on TikTok. You know, it's crazy. And all you have to do as a parent is get on there and scroll about five little scrolls up and then you should know this is super inappropriate. But the fact that it's even a thing, mm-hmm. you know, is insane. All right. I know. I went down the rabbit hole. Um, we talked about porn addiction. Okay. How, is, uh, how has been um, being a CSAT and a Christian, how's that been difficult or beneficial? This was the one of those whenever you sent me this last night that mm-hmm. I was thinking I could talk for hours about this. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you want to go first <laughs> before I get distracted. Olivia's an eight, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. I'm with a wing seven. So anyway. Um, I mean, it, it, in I guess uh, in in my experience, you know, it, it's um, I mean, it's. And considering, you know, we're in the South, in the deep South, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that I've probably dealt more with, um, Christians who are struggling with, you know, with pornography addiction, uh, equally as much as, you know, working with sex addiction too, you know? So, so I, I do think that, um, you know, it's, it's something that is, uh, I think I'm deviating from the question here, but, but it's something that's not being addressed, you know, and, and churches don't really know how to handle it. And, you know, there's just a, a lot of unsurety on, uh, you know, what to, what to do, you know, like, I know I have these beliefs, but I'm still doing this, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I've, I've seen quite a bit of, um, you know, people who I wouldn't even necessarily even label as addicts, but their goal is to, you know, this is not in my belief system. I don't want to do this. And so I've, I've really, you know, worked with a lot of those, um, guys on, you know, getting, getting them to the point where they need to be and just refocusing. So, you know, I, I think it's really, um, given me some sense of purpose. Like, you know, like I know I'm, I'm really doing this for God and really helping people overcome this stuff. Um, that would normally just feel lost and, you know, not really talk to anybody about it because who are you going to go talk to? You know, there's, there's not really that outlet there. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to go talk to my, my pastor or, you know, they may judge me or somebody in the church may judge me. And so, um, so I've, I've been in that spot where, Hey, I'm this neutral guy that's not connected to your congregation. 
oh, and he works with sex addiction stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to go see you and, and work with you on this. So, I mean, I think that in my community, that's been very beneficial, um, to be sort of this neutral person to help people work through stuff. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. That, that was just good. the first thing that popped in my head. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, helped me as well. Just have that, you know, like I said, sense of purpose to, uh, you know, help those who are really struggling that normally wouldn't even mention it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good because it's true because it's such a taboo thing, especially right. within the Christian culture. And right. so that's why I think it goes unmentioned so often. Um, I was, I mean, I was just thinking back on my time working at an inpatient facility where I wasn't, I was in a place where I couldn't identify my belief system. I mean, people could probably pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Right. But I couldn't identify my belief system and we worked in a 12 step versus a faith work. And so it's the higher power talk. Um, and there were several times there that I just thought y'all need Jesus. You right. know, I was like, <laughs> y'all just need Jesus. Um, and there was another therapist there that we kind of laugh about that back and forth. I'm like, y'all need Jesus and y'all need a therapist. <laughs> um, and they were in my group. So right. anyway, I was the therapist. Um, but I think being able to practice now the way that I'm practicing really opens it up to be that neutral place for people to come talk to about it. Um, and this may be deviating some too, but I'm just thinking sometimes the struggle, um, and being a female CSAT that works primarily, I, I have female sex addicts, but primarily it's men that present with that, um, at least up front women present with other things and then I get to that. Well, I mean, I think, and not to interrupt you, but I am, uh, that's what I'm saying is going to change is right now. We're still working off of the decades ago adults. Like we're all talking about seeing adults and we're seeing 40, 35, 50 year old people. So it's going to be mainly men Mm -hmm. just because of statistics and because of the access and the, and the, the way culture was. Mm-hmm. I'm super interested to see what CSATs are seeing in the next five to 10 years when we have 35 year old women who have been teenagers during TikTok, you know, and all these things. So anyway, mm-hmm. so when, just for people listening, when you're hearing us say men, 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 it's not because men are, I think we're more susceptible. I think it's an important thing to say at this time. I think men are more susceptible to visual images than women are. Right. Um, we're more stimulated by it. I mean, whether people believe it or not, men and women's bodies are different. You right. know, like most women don't want a nude picture of their husband during the day, but most men would totally like, you know, a picture of their wife and it would give them a biological reaction that it doesn't necessarily give to women. Right. Mm-hmm. It gives you a different response from a visual sensation. And so in the past, a magazine, a playboy, a hustler, a, a softcore show, a woman's not going to visually get stimulated the same way sexually that a man will. They can, but on a spectrum, that's not going to happen. And so, but now we're shifting into the phone and the immersion of these visual images. And so it's, it, women are getting, and girls are getting just as aroused and just turned on because they're seeing it at such a larger level. Mm -hmm. And it's like, at some point you have this breakthrough where it's like, oh, I saw that. It wasn't that stimulating. The guy saw it and they're like, oh man, it's automatically stimulating. But now it's like, well, now I've seen it five times. And so now it's super stimulating. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking most of the men that I see intersex addiction through sex, most of the women I see intersex addiction through love. Yep. There you right. Go. Um, so, okay. What was this? Anyway, as a female working yeah, with men, yeah. sorry, I had, yeah, but that was good. Um, as a female working with men, that's the other thing that I encounter in a pretty, um, 
old school Christian world is men working with women. Like they're, you know, in the church, sometimes there's the men aren't allowed to be alone with women. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes that will come into play and I'll have spouses ask those questions. And I'm like, look, I'm going to be asking personal questions, sign a release. And you're more than welcome to ask, ask me. And I want, you know, you can come in here and you can see how I work. That has to be really careful with disclosure stuff. But anyway, so, you know, have that conversation pretty openly with them about why I'm doing what I'm doing and what that looks like. Um, So that's one hurdle I've seen doing this work in the Christian world. And the other is just really just how taboo it is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think back and fortunately now I'm able to reference scripture and verses and, you know, able to touch and go into the Bible some with people. And from the beginning of time, how sex has been a part of and has veered people away from the Lord and from Christ Mm -hmm. and how that's been such a big piece. And so being able to talk with people about that, um, you know, I've seen be really impactful for, for their healing because so many people get their higher power of, and that's using 12 step words, but get God confused with a parental figure. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm able to go back and do some of that work and say, okay, how can we be powerless to this? How can we, you know, take a look at that? It, it can be really helpful. And I like doing that kind of work with people. It's good. Yeah. Any other thoughts about that? I just had a thought, you know, not necessarily to tag onto that. It's just, um, you know, another thing is, is I think it's really important as Christians for us to be intentional with our kids, um, and not shelter them and put them in a box and pretend like this is not part of the world because they will encounter it in one way or another. Um, and then just, you know, sheltering them away from that, uh, is not necessarily going to get any results that are healthy in the long run, you know, and I'm not saying to, to go immerse them and, 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 and <laughs> yeah. say, Hey, we're going to go look at, you know, porn. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. But I, I do think it's important to be intentional with our kids and, um, you know, let them know like, Hey, this is, this is what's out there. And, you know, this is what the Bible says about it. This is what, you know, really walking this out looks like. And, um, you know, it's just education. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're looking for that, uh, I think it's, I don't know what episode it is, maybe 28 or 29. We do a episode on talking to your kids about sex, right. developmental milestones, all those kind of things, sexual neglects. So if you want more information about that, go listen to that. Um, but I think you're spot on. I think that's the, like everything in America right now, it's so polarized. You know, you, you said that, but that was literally a news article, you know, six months ago. I can't remember the guy, but he's the ABC anchor. And his wife, you know, they found out their daughter was watching porn. And so the wife was like, I sat down and watched it with her. And I explained that this, you know, I, I sat and watched it and said, this is not, this is why this is fake. And this is what it was real. And you know, I just took it head on. It's like, okay, well, that's an extreme response, right. right? That's like, well, let's smoke crack together. And I'm going to tell you why this crack's bad for you. You know I mean? There's a level of inability to win. We were talking about this before the podcast, but like people think that they're, you know, they parented their kid in a way that, you know, oh, well, I taught them the rules. I gave them structure, even if I gave them all the education. But they can't beat the phone. Mm-hmm. And they can't beat social media. They're 12, 13, 14. They're, their brain, their prefrontal, they don't have any ability to win. And, yeah, they can maybe white-knuckle it and get away with it a couple of times, but eventually it's going to get them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I just think having the, a really good – sexual education for your kids, teaching them biblically the right way to view it, you know, not making it taboo, making it normal and comfortable, using the words penis and vagina, you know, having safe touch, not safe touch, you know, having these things by the time they hit puberty and they, 
you know, or going through these things that are really equipped to not feel shame about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and the shame, uh, what, what do y'all think about? Like, you know, let's say you have a 13 year old kid, parents find out that they were looking at porn, caught them, you know, in the act. Um, a lot of times what I've seen is, is a very extreme response to that. Um, but then the shame really starts to come in at that point. What, what do y'all think about that? I guess, or, yeah, I'm so, I, don't, I know you're asking the question. No, but, it's fine. But I, I just feel like me. that's a that's a <laughs> great talk. That's no, a that's a great topic. You know, it, no, it, I think it. I think that's one of the number one core things that I think that creates sex addiction. And uh, Ken Adams talks about that at the mm -hmm. training a lot. That yeah. it only takes that one moment of your mom joking about masturbation or shaming you to still be in your brain when you're trying to have sex with your wife at 35. Mm -hmm. You know, or you know, if you've masturbated in, 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 at 35. You know, it's like all this child you feel that same guilt and that same shame and so i tell parents all the time don't walk in on them you know if you open the door or see something or catch something you know let the process finish out go to them and say hey listen i need to talk to you about something it's going to be pretty intense and probably overwhelming so take five minutes and go pray and i'm going to pray and i'm going to come in there and we're going to have a conversation mm -hmm. and then go in and say tell me about this what was going on how long has this been happening i don't want you to feel shame this is a normal thing. It's not a healthy thing, depending on what the circumstances are, but let's talk about it, you know? And, uh, I'll, every time I do a talk somewhere, I always get the question like, is masturbation a sin? And then I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, it depends on the person and the circumstance and so many variables around it mm -hmm. on whether I would think it was or wasn't. And they want just a general overview. Yes or no. Yeah. Yeah. I think <clears throat> I, I agree with that. And I really like the idea of, don't walk in on them. Like right. just, that, that was golden. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I'm going to steal it. And so, no problem. <clears throat> um, I see that response where they either over respond mm -hmm. or they don't respond at all. Right. So, like, whenever I'm doing a timeline with someone, yeah, yeah, it's, what happened? <laughs> um, but whenever I'm doing a timeline with someone and they start talking about their mm -hmm. sexual experiences, I'm like, okay, well, or they got caught with porn in their room or masturbating or whatever. Well, what did your parents say about that? Well, they didn't. Right. You know, and so it, then it becomes this really passive, and that creates the shame too. Is the passivity around it? I see creates the shame too, because then if they go to talk about it, that's shameful too. Yeah. Well, and you. Can, it's just not as loud. Yeah. Well, what you communicate as a parent is we don't talk about this. Right. Yeah. So that's the problem is they they have a pornography situation or a masturbation situation or something that I would say is mild, and the parents go, well, we're not talking about that. And we never have talked about it. We've never given you any context before puberty. And then you have a sleepover or you have a situation where somebody is abusive to you. And you're like, well, these are all in the same category to me. And now I feel responsible because I did it or I liked it or it felt good or it was some positive thing. And I'm definitely not going to go tell my parents because they've already communicated to me. We don't talk about this. Mm -hmm. And so I hear all the time. I mean, I know y'all do, too. Hey, I've never told anybody this. Mm hmm. But when I was eight, I touched my sibling or my cousin or my cousin touched me and I felt such shame for 30 years, you know, or 40 years. You know, I had a 70 year old client tell me that one time and I'm like, you've been carrying this for 60 years, mm -hmm. but it's because no one told them you were just kids mm -hmm. like that wasn't there. They're, they look back at, like as an adult thinking that their eight year old self was thinking how they think about it at 35 and it's not the same thing. You know, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just unsupervised, overstimulated, and exploring. And although that is abusive to the victim, 
it's not the same as being a perpetrator as an adult. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so when I unpack that for people, the shame reduction, and I start talking about the, the, the fact that that's very common and the problem isn't them. It's, it's a lack of support. It's a lack of resourcing. It's a lack of education from parents who didn't know any better. You know, they had no clue how to talk about those things. There literally weren't books. You know, my mom used to say, oh, there's not a book on parenting. I'm like, well, there's a lot now. But there literally weren't things and resources to understand that. So I think that shame reduction piece is just super, super important. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the church can get equipped. I mean, that's part of what we want to do as a, a practice is equip the church on how to talk about these things. Why should we talk about these things? You know. You gonna say something? No, I, I was just, I was just thinking in my head of uh you know it, it it's both sides. I didn't uh, I was sexually abused as a kid, and I didn't tell anybody till I was nineteen. Mm -hmm. It's just something you compartment. I compartmentalized it and just moved on. Um, but now that I've really looked at stuff, you know, it definitely you know impacted a lot of stuff in my childhood as well. You know, so you really mm -hmm. you know I was I mean obviously it's on the flip side of what you were you were saying, um, but I think that's the importance of you know, facilitating that healthy environment to talk to your kids uh, and encourage them, you know, like, hey, look, you know, you can trust us. We want to talk to you. You know, yeah, we still have rules. These are the household rules, but we are here for you and, and have that nurturing environment um, for whatever situation may present itself. Because I've, I never felt comfortable. You know, I, I never felt like it was something that I wasn't going to talk about. And then I just put it away in a box and mm -hmm. never dealt with it. But then it dealt with me more than I ever realized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like like we said, I mean, one in three girls and one in five boys. So that's the thing. If you're in a room full of 100 people, yeah, 100 women, you're, you got 70% of them in the room. That's pretty insane, you know. And so you're not alone in that. You know, I've had my own trauma and, you know, during puberty and all those kind of things with cousins and neighbors. And, and it's so common for us to have been abused or been neglected or been, you know, emotionally, I mean, physically touched or had play and it been, oh, I don't know what this is. This is crazy. This is stimulating. This is overwhelming. Right. And then you, you shove that. And then you're like, I'm never telling anybody that ever again. Because mm -hmm. the idea that you would share that with somebody and they wouldn't just say, get out of here. I don't love you. Right. Or you're dirty or you're broken or you're, it was your fault. Or now I got to go deal with the person who did it. Mm -hmm. and bring that all back up and cause a problem in their life and report it and all these things. There's so many reasons, you know, and so I think that's why it's so important for people to get trained on how to talk to your kids about these things because you reduce that by like 90%, mm -hmm. right? You know? I think also understanding the cultural messages, like not just the family messages, but the cultural messages around it as well because so many of my partners, probably just women in general, I won't even say partners, just women that I work with in general that have had some sort of sexual abuse. One, they may not even call it that right. because it's just, you know, they were just being a guy. I'm like, no. Mm -hmm. mm -mm. Um, you know, so they may not even call it that. But then I've had some tell me that, you know, well, I was drunk and so it was bound to happen. Yeah, I shouldn't have been drunk. I shouldn't have been mm -hmm. drunk while well, I was wearing this, right? So it's these cultural messages that maybe they didn't pick up in family, but just places outside of there that impact how they view what's happened to them. That it's their fault that someone else did something to them that was boundary violating, harmful, hurtful, and abusive. Mm -hmm. That they've made, that's where the shame comes in too is there's also not that education on boundaries mm -hmm. of, 
okay, well, you could be, I use this, this with especially my women clients all the time. I'm like, you could be standing nude in an alleyway and no one has a right to do anything to you. Right. What you and I need to talk about is why you were standing nude in an alleyway. <laughs> right. Right. And, and why you were there. Well, I think that's the, I mean, that's so beautifully said because that's what the world's not wanting to talk about. You know, it's so bipartisan and so broken off. It's like, it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it's both. Like we have to have both of those conversations. Right. Mm-hmm. We have to have, have, Hey, why are you watching porn? Let's hold, let's handle that. Why aren't y'all having sex? Mm-hmm. Both of those conversations have to happen without shaming either partner. But there's there's a healthy relationship and then there's unhealthy and we have to name that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not blaming people for the other person's actions. It's saying, Why were you standing naked in the alley? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's right. Good. Yeah. Yeah, that, that I mean that moves into we won't get into all of it, but like the Me Too movement and all those kind of things. It's like there's so much rich, good stuff about that, and then mm-hmm. there's so many things that are like, Well, that's taking it too far or taking it over here or inconsistent. Right. But if you try to talk about the inconsistency, then you're saying none of the other good stuff matters. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you have to be able to talk about a nuance, though. And right. it's hard to find a middle ground. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, why more people need training, more people need equipping. Um, people need to be able to understand the science behind it, the family systems aspect of it. I mean, it is. It's really rich. I mean, look at all the stuff we've talked about in an hour and a half for people to be able to, like, we're just spouting it out. But, like, if you don't know any of this, but you're dealing with all of it, it's really right. scary and overwhelming. Right. And, 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 and just to point out, you know, it's an investment. You have to invest the time into it. And I think, you know, just, you know, it, and I know this sounds like I'm talking bad about culture, but just the way that the world is right now, it's, we want, you know, faster, stronger, better, quicker, you know, like cheaper, cheaper. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, but all of it, and you know, like I, I want to scroll and my computer to be faster, you know, like all of it. And so we, we get used to that and we just want, Oh, well, what's the quick answer? You know, am I, am I a porn addict? And like, what do I do? What are the steps? You know? And it's just so much work in that. And, and, and it's not simple, you mm-hmm. know? It's not. All right. Let's, if, if you are struggling with this stuff or maybe you're a spouse whose husband or wife's watching porn or has cheated or you caught them doing something, um, what, what are kind of the, what's the treatment plan? What do we normally do? What's a typical way we walk people through this? What can they expect to deal with? Cause there's, there is no one set thing, but there's kind of a general foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My sarcastic brain was thinking, run away. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Um, Go ahead. I was I was gonna say I mean just making that first step to reach out and start the process. Uh-huh. You know, don't don't get you know I know we mentioned you know maybe two to three years earlier. Don't let that discourage you, um, because it's 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 not about that. It's about you know you taking that first step, and every day you're gonna have to continue to take a first step. Um, not not referencing the twelve steps. I'm just saying you will have to take a step every day, um, and it's it's not about you necessarily the goal is to get to the top of the mountain but you need to look at the two steps or three steps right in front of you Mm -hmm. you know or you stay where you're at you Mm -hmm. know but do you want to stay where you're at for 10 years and not do any work on yourself Mm -hmm. yeah martin luther king jr has a a quote that i use pretty often with clients first starting of you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step right Mm -hmm. and i I mean i think that's that same idea mm -hmm. um if you don't have to see the whole path in front of you, don't let that two to three years freak you out just to step in and take the first step. And the whole two to three years isn't as hard as the first, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, yes, it's a two to three year process, but like 
the second year and the third year, you're coming to therapy and working through things and it can be really rich and good and hard, but like good for you. Where right. the first year, it feels like a lot of times, like it's just that first six months, that first year is just super painful and it's a lot of recovery. Right. But once you get the recovery under your belt, then you start to be able to do the the bigger picture right. stuff. And, and it's not like every session is rough, right? right. I mean, but but I, I mean, I've seen the light bulb come on and the aha moments, and it really like after that point, there's a shifting of just how you view what's going on, how you view yourself, you know, like really sorting through some stuff, you know. So it's not you know just a horrible first year um there's going to be tough moments there's going to be good moments that you're going to be enlightened um you're going to have weeks where you know it's just really difficult and so you know having the support aspect and having um you know uh, out out uh, outside support uh whether it be a 12-step group or what other whatever other kind of support system you um you know you come up with and therapy you know like it's going to be um you know worth it yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I say to my clients, the opposite of addiction is connection. And right. so just finding that, like you're saying, in a 12-step group, even just coming to see a therapist, uh, I mean, that's just the first big part mm-hmm. in treating this and seeking help for this is finding a way to connect to somebody in some way. That's shame-reducing in itself, I think. Well, that sounds terrible, so why would I do that? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's the other thing is it is terrible, <laughs> right? It does feel terrible. And the reason to do that is I think even, and I mean, maybe y'all correct me, but I think even in that first session, once a person can make it through that first terrible session, they may feel some sort of hope they haven't experienced before. If, if they're with somebody that knows what they're doing yeah, and, the, and what the it. path yeah. could look like for them. I think even just getting that first hour mm-hmm. over with, can give some sort of hope to say, okay, this may be a long process and I understand why I'm doing this terrible journey now. Yeah. It reminds me of just, I mean, Jesus and just being a hundred percent graceful and a hundred percent truthful at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, as a Christian counselor, we're able to say, listen, we love you and we accept you and we understand. And here's probably how you got here. And here's the pattern in which we've normally seen and tell us your story and how you, you know, got to this point. We're not jumping in on, I can't believe you're not, you're watching porn. I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you did that. It's like, no, we totally can believe it. And let's just paint the picture of how you got here. Cause you probably never looked at that. Mm-hmm. You focus so much on the behavior and how shameful and terrible you are for this behavior. You've never put in context mm-hmm. why the behavior's happening. But then the other side is we also speak truth of like, yes, we love you and yes, you're worthy and yes, you're valuable, but you're saying these things are killing you and we want to help you for them not to kill you because they're, they're toxic. And so we're going to hold you accountable. We're going to do the exercise. We're going to make you do the work. And although it's painful, it has a purpose. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. It, I mean, it's never about taking the easy road. And I think we've just, you know, become accustomed to that of wanting the, the easy way out. You know, like oh, I'm going to go get this diploma and go to school just to, to, to get, make it easy. I mean, but, but, you know, if you change your mindset and say, no, I want to learn, I want to, you know, this, that's what, that's what this is about. It's not just, you know, getting the diploma and moving on to the next part of life. Cause then you're not enjoying the moment. You're just focused on something down the road and you're not really in the present. It's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all about perception. Mm-hmm. No, it definitely is. Um, Uh, one of the questions people ask me all the time is, so we, I had a sex addiction group facing the shadow group at a church one time and they, uh, I did it for probably four or five weeks, maybe a 10 week 
one and then we're going to start the next one and the leadership came in and said hey listen we have youth on wednesday night you know it's on another side of the church but the parents are you know saw the sign or heard that this was happening and they feel like their kids are in danger and so can we talk like for the people that are out there how does pedophilia which is right the attraction to kids or child pornography how does that play into addiction how is what's the overlap there should people be terrified like if my husband watches porn he's going to end up abusing our children mm-hmm. i love this topic <laughs> isn't that weird not for me <laughs> I, I, no no it's not weird yeah did you have a thought i'm thinking you go first uh yeah so this is something um especially when whenever i was working primarily with sex addicts that i faced often um because the other word that gets thrown around is not just pedophile but pervert Mm -hmm. and you maybe had that in your questions i can't remember um but those are the two words that get thrown around pretty often and another reason why someone doesn't want to label themselves as a sex addict because then people are going to think that they're a pedophile or a pervert and so I think you had something in there about child pornography too. Um, No, just because someone is a sex addict does not mean that they are a pedophile. And just because they are a pedophile does not mean that they are a sex addict. Right. Right. And so it's the same for like a sexual offender. Just because someone is a sexual offender doesn't mean that they're a sex addict. Just because they're a sex addict doesn't mean they're a sexual offender. Um, I have seen where it's that overlap where it's both. Um, I have worked with individuals that have been diagnosed with pedophilia and majority of those that I've worked with have felt such extreme shame over it. Um, Pretty, pretty dark places that they've got like suicidal thinking, attempted suicide. So most of them with that have a lot of shame around it. Um, Those that I've worked with, majority of them that have struggled with with that have had the childhood trauma that have created an arousal template that's really really harmful and that's where it's hard to hate people from up close um because like the people that you're talking about i mean i don't know this church so not to knock on them or anything but just using that as an example of that's a lack of education for the public around what sex addiction is and what a sex addict is is to think that these people are extremely harmful to other people. The reality is the sex addicts are generally really high functioning individuals and most people in the public aren't going to know that the people they're interacting with are sex addicts. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say they're your doctors, they're your lawyers, they're your pastors, they're, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're not out just, you know, perpetrating against everyone. Right. Right. I mean, and, and, and it's, you can never talk in absolutes because you just, you're never sure, right? You can't promise anything, but most people that are going to go, let's say to a face in the shadow group at a church, you know, they, they're at the point where they're like, Hey, I need help. I have this extreme shame and, and I want to, I want to change this. Right. I'm not, I'm not trying to come here to, you know, think Act about out. any of any kids, anything. I'm not acting out. I, I really just want to have some support because I need this in my life, mm-hmm. you know? And then if you think of, um, you know, while I'm not an expert on predators, you know, but, but I mean, if you think of a, what a predator would be, it's somebody that goes into a congregation and they talk the talk, they do everything right. And they are probably some of the most respectful people in the congregation mm-hmm. and they play that role very well. Um, you know, because it's just pathological at that point. And so those, those m- could be more of, you know, what would a predator look like, you know, so yeah. it's, it's, there's not, 
I mean, and there's not like a typical sort of, I guess, MO, you know, like, I mean, it just really depends. Yeah. I think the stats show that most people who deal with arousal towards children, 99% of them, I'd probably say a hundred have sexual trauma, have sexual neglect, have been as a child sexually abused intensely. Like not just a little, you know, no, no abuse is good, but multiple times over years, um, never dealt with it. Then they watch pornography, right? That leads, that might start with adult functioning, but because of how pornography is, you need the higher arousal. Then they get triggered by their past. They see something that they weren't looking for. And now that's arousing. So can you, Brent, when you talk a little bit about like what an arousal template is and how that forms, because I think people have a really hard time. Well, I don't think anybody knows that. And I think we're going to see this be a conversation that needs to be had in the next five years um, because it's, you know, blowing up. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, an arousal template is basically just what arouses you based off of, you know, your different experiences, um, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, if you have trauma in the past or, you know, just a lot of preference, you know, so if, um, you know, I, I talk a lot about with, you know, pornography, right. You know, like the types of pornography people watch, you know, what, what really gets you going, um, you know, in comparison to maybe something else that isn't necessarily as arousing. So, I mean, it's not this complex term that's super confusing. I mean, it is what it sounds. It's, you know, what arouses you. Um, but you get much more in depth when it, when you start working with people, um, to really figure out, you know, what about, um, you know, this type of pornography or this behavior, what, what is that? Like, you know, what are the reasons, what, what drives you? Like what makes this different than let's say, you know, this other type of pornography? I don't Mm. know if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, there, there's a lot of different variables to look at. Uh, and, and, and I mean, I see a lot of people often minimize like, Oh, I just like, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, girl on girl, girl on girl porn or something like, Oh, no big deal. You know, but okay. So it's what's underneath that. Like, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. And so when you really start to dig under, uh, then you start to really see, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, different types of childhood, uh, childhood trauma or, you know, um, you know, your dad flopping a magazine of two girls down whenever, you know, you were 13 and you found it, you know, in there on the nightstand or something. Right. It was like the first thing you saw, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's, there's just so many different variables. I hope that um, that was what you're looking for. No, it was good. Yeah. Olivia? What Any more to say to that? Arousal template. Just, just for people to understand. I guess what, mm-hmm. I mean, that is what I'm looking for. I guess I just want people to understand that what turns men and women on, whether a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing, isn't coming out of nowhere. Right. Right. That people have varying degrees of arousal because of their family system, because of their exposure and because of their lack of education around these issues. And so I think a lot of people struggle with being aroused by certain things and thinking, well, I'm unique and I'm gross or I'm, I like this and my wife doesn't have it or my husband doesn't have it. And so I need to go seek it over here because it's the only thing that's going to do it for me. And what people have to understand is they have to go back into why is that the case? And actually they can deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, they can find ways that that thing is either healthy or you steer it in a healthy direction. But once you actually understand the emotional component and where it started, then the thing isn't that big of a deal. Does that make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think y'all said it really well. Okay. The only thing I'd add is I see a lot of the time people don't marry their arousal template. Right. Um, th- like literally. Very, very true. <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Like they don't, I've seen that pretty often where they aren't married to their arousal template. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, my wife and I laugh about it all the time because um, she is blonde headed and blue eyed, and everybody in our family is you know dark complexion, dark hair. And so when I was growing up, I would always just be like in my head, I'm like, I'm gonna marry a dark complected person. That's who I'm attracted to. You know, really tan, really dark. You know, that's that's the thing. Um, and you know, you go through these, and you didn't. I didn't really ever connect the dots. You know, I just that's just in my head as a teenager. You know, like oh, well, you know, you have this kind of thing that you visualize. One because I didn't want it to make my family feel weird. You know, I remember that difficulty in the beginning of her coming over and being the only blonde-headed, blue-eyed person in the in the group. And there's part of you that's like, if you're insecurely attached and you have trauma, you're like, well, I just don't want to. I don't want to stir anything up. So let me just go find something that's simple. Mm-hmm. And so that arousal. Right. It doesn't have to be overtly sexual. It can be very emotional in your family system of like what makes them feel comfortable and what is normal and what are they going to like? It's like it's the whole like city boy, you know, coming into the country town and everybody's like, who's this city guy, you know, or vice versa. Those are part of what makes up why you're attracted to people. And if you don't deal with it, then, yeah, you marry people for the wrong reasons. And then you have to deal with that later. Mm hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just want people, that's what I wanted people to understand is that it's deeper than just, oh, I'm attracted to this person just because it happened. That right. that's not actually how it works. Right. But I'll, just to tag on what you just said, yeah. I mean, I want to point out, like, you can deal with it later, you yeah. know, because I think a lot of times people often just, you know, give up and then they retreat into this fantasy world, you know, with pornography or whatever. Um, but there is an ability to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, if you're if you're attracted to something that goes against your morals or goes against who you, you know you think God's made you to be, there is a way to figure out yeah. if that was something that was originally given to you or if that was a part of your family trauma and system. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if somebody's struggling out there right now or has a situation that they're struggling with that they're like, this goes against who I am, who people you know my family says that I am, who my morals say that I am, it's making me discom- uncomfortable like let's ask some questions and dive into what's happened to you and how that formed and how that started and when it started because there's some basic biology you know before puberty that says kids aren't looking at each other as sexual creatures you know there's attachment and attunement but you know not many five-year-olds are looking at each other and thinking i want to have sex with you Mm -hmm. i want to be sexual towards you if they are then most likely they've been exposed to something something's happened to them their testosterone or estrogen levels are off. There's something going on that has made them a very small statistical number that has that problem or that struggle going on. Right. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't get addressed. And then that over the course of puberty balloons into all kinds of other problems. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah. I would just say that goes into the shame piece. Like if, because with it being those young ages, a lot of kids explore, like boys start to realize oh, she doesn't have this part. Well, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Right. So they start to explore each other's bodies. My mom was a pre-K teacher for a year and had to like monitor the hallway bathrooms because kids just started getting interested and curious. And so that goes back to that conversation of how are you talking to your kids? Is it a shameful conversation? Generally, it's the parent's shame around sex that gets transmitted down to the kids whenever it's that kind of situation. So anyway, not to get too distracted no that's great just a thought no that's i mean you can keep going with that i mean i think that's spot on i think you know parents need to deal with their own stuff so they're not projecting and passing that inappropriate stuff onto their kid and saying oh well this is just that or they're just this way or they've always been this way and not taking into consideration what they've played into that i think that's a huge issue i see 
with te- preteens and uh, and then teens, whatever they're dealing with sexually, coming and saying, well, here's what I've always felt. And the parents are like, yep, they've always been that way. But then when we get into it, it's like, well, we were divorced and they had some trauma and they saw porn one time and they did this. And it's like, but we're just going to pretend like none of that affected this current issue because the parent doesn't want to be blamed for it. Mm-hmm. And so then we're going to just give a general, like, this is just how it is. And like, for me, I find that people find a lot of, you know, no hope in that. They're like, well, that means I can't change. That means I can't recover. That means I can't overcome this. This is just who I am. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to always struggle with this. And I think what we've seen clinically is that no, people can rewire their brains and yeah. they can change the way they are aroused to things and they can change the, the way that they, um, you know, struggle with sexual issues in their life. Um, that doesn't mean it always goes away. Right. I mean, those things might still be there, but you feel less shame, you feel in control, and you know what you're dealing with, and you know where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Right. I often say it takes persistence and consistency. You know, just, I mean, you have to. You have to be intentional about what you're doing. There's not an easy easy fix sometimes. Mm -hmm. No, there's not. Um, Okay, any final thoughts or comments or anything we missed that I didn't go over? I always have final thoughts and yeah, comments. That's fine. <laughs> Can I circle back to one thing really yeah, quickly yeah, that I thought about? Um, I think I have ADD because I think at the same time that I listen to people talk. Going back to the to the church um, and Christianity and doing this work, the other thing that I, I would just add to that really quickly um, is so often I think the message gets passed on that, especially with men, if they have a problem with pornography, if they get married, I think you and I have talked about this, mm-hmm. that if they get married, then now that will help heal right. their pornography problem. Yeah, and, so to be specific, if you get married as a dude and you think, oh, well, we're going to be having sex more, so I'm not going to struggle with porn. Yeah. Right. It's not necessarily true. Yeah, That would just be the only thing that I would circle back to is there's hope in that, too, of if you're struggling with this and thinking, well, if only I could get married, then I wouldn't struggle with sexual sin anymore you know, that's not necessarily the case. And I would really encourage anyone that struggles with that to seek help prior to getting married. Yeah, um, right. And if you are married and struggling with that, seek help with that as well. Um, because it's like you said earlier of, I uh, can't remember how you phrased it, but essentially looking at pornography as an affair yeah. behavior in the marriage. So anyway, I just got to thinking about that and thinking, you know, I would tag that on to what I was saying about Christianity and sex addiction work. Not saying, anyway, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Of not saying just because you watch porn, you're a sex addict. But um, that if if you're struggling with that sexual sin, adding someone to that does not mean it goes away. Right. Um, so, anyway. Not to, I've seen that before as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, it takes community. And I think one of the things to change the course of, I mean, I think this is an epidemic, right, that we have right now. This is this, this sexual trauma, sexual sin, sexual brokenness is, is a pandemic. It's a worldwide issue. And it, it's interesting because it crosses all socioeconomic statuses, right? It's not yeah. like there's not a lot of, you know, rich upper, upper middle class people smoking crack. Right, but there are a lot of rich upper or middle class people and really poor people watching porn, struggling with trafficking, being you know being coerced, dealing with all these things, and so everybody's susceptible to it. Yep. And with the phone and with the, the internet and with everything else, like you're susceptible to it at a at a larger level because you also now have 
so many generations of this primer of trauma and this primer of divorce and this primer of attachment and this primer of sexual neglect. It's like we're the kids are all primed and ready for the, this now huge dopamine drip to just hit them. And then it goes off to the races. And so the church has to see that and go, you know, we have to equip ourselves. We have to have people come in that are professionals and train us and talk to us so we can equip the parents because if we know what the stats are, which people don't, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday uh, and their kids struggling and they were saying, I was telling them about the self-harm rate has increased 200% in 10 years and the suicide rate in teens has increased 76%. And they just, both of them were like crying, you know? And I'm like, the fact that you don't know that, like that's the problem, right? It's like, how can the stat be this large and yet no, the average person doesn't know that 76% of teens are killing themselves more, right? Mm-hmm. That 200% more kids are cutting themselves. How is that not a known fact? And it's because we don't talk about it. Same with sex, same with porn. The church kind of shies away from it. We don't really want to deal with it. So then you have a Bible study full of men, full of women, and you're with them for a year. You know what the stats are, and yet no one's talking about it. And for me, it's like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. You know, if we're not going to contextualize this brokenness and, and reduce shame, all we're doing is keeping people isolated, and eventually they're just going to not come. You know, they're not going to come to the church. They're not going to show up to the Bible study. They're going to go... I have this thing that's killing me that I'm depressed and anxious about. I come expecting to be able to share it or desiring to share it. Really. If you, if somebody would just push me or ask me a question or open the door, say me too, you know, and yet people don't do that. Cause like you said, it's like our parents were, we're all still not dealing with our stuff. So we don't feel comfortable talking about it in a group. And I think as disciple makers, as leaders in the church, we have to be able to boast in our weaknesses Right? We have to be able to believe that people can be transformed by the renewing of their mind so that they have hope. And we can be really confident as clinicians to do that, but man, how much better would it be if, if the body was doing that? Mm-hmm. So I just encourage you, if you're listening and you're in a church, if you're a Christian, if you're, you, know, you know you're struggling with this or your kids are struggling with it, you know, reach out for help. Ask professionals. Call Brent or Olivia or me or our practice and you know, see sat in your area and find someone who's trained, who understands the nuances of this stuff, who can meet with you and walk with you because there is hope and you can recover. And, and I don't know about y'all, but I mean, I see people stay married and then they have a thousand time better marriage than they've ever thought they could have. Have y'all seen that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see yeah. people come back and go, man, like our marriage is so much better than it ever was. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to trade it for what we have. I'll have people walk in you know, and I have a couple right now that got a bit frustrated with me because the husband came in. He was like, you know, I came in with a porn problem and now I have a marriage problem. Right. Yeah. I was like, so you didn't before <laughs> porn was, right. you just called it. Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, any closing thoughts, comments? I mean, I, I feel like we hit a lot. of Yeah. Stuff. We did cover some stuff. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. I really appreciate you guys. I know that, uh, I love talking about CSAT stuff with CSAT. So it makes me not feel as crazy. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes we can get kind of stuck in the, in the funnel. Um, and it's good to see other people doing good work and realizing there are other people fighting this, you know, I know. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough being the only person down there and like, sure. you know, well, I know it is. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and, I mean, just not having the ability to, you know, work with other CSATs is tough just in and of itself. Oh yeah. It mm-hmm. makes the job very complicated. Oh, it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're listening, Brent, Brent Woods, he's woods counseling. He's in, you can look him up on Facebook, Instagram, 
Um, you got a, what's your website? Uh, WoodsCounselingServices.com. Yeah, and he's in Lake Charles. So if you need a referral down there, or you got people anywhere close to there and need some help, uh, he's a great counselor, good therapist, good Christian dude, good dad. I like him a lot. So call him up. And then Olivia Mason, she's over in Ruston in our Ruston office at Clint Davis Counseling. You can find her on our website. Um, yeah, give us a call. If you need help, reach out. Um, I'd suggest checking out the rest of our podcast that we've done on this topic. And, uh, and if you heard something in this episode that we didn't dive deep enough into, it's probably because we did a whole podcast on that one thing. So whether it's family systems or talking to your kids about sex or trauma or betrayal trauma, um, we have whole episodes on all of that stuff to really deep dive into. So we hope this was helpful. Um, we wish you all the best. Yeah, man. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, God bless you and have a good day.